0: standing in body or in spirit, I invite you to join me as we probably are practicing the um, discipline that the disciples would have practiced in Jesus when they came before God's word. They would have recited what in Hebrew is known as the Shema, what Jesus would come to call the great commandment. So we'll do it if you'll follow after me in Hebrew and then we'll join together in English. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You may be seated. I would like to invite your attention to the video screens uh, this morning. Uh, for the next several Sundays, we're going to uh, have a brief word from uh, one of our pastors, Scott Hare, who's a friend and colleague of mine. Also, he's the pastor of our north campus uh, called Riverside. In 2012, Scott got the great opportunity to live in Jerusalem for the entire summer. Uh, with his family. And so what we are doing is asking him some different questions about uh, his experience in uh, Jerusalem and his thoughts about Jerusalem. Uh, as you may know, we are using Jerusalem and the temple not only to talk about Jerusalem and the temple, but really as a way to talk about ourselves as a church and as people of faith. And so I invite you to hear what Scott brings us today.
1: When I hear the word Jerusalem, what comes to my mind? Um, For me, it's a layering of things that come to my mind. But probably the first thing that comes to my mind is what may come to everybody's mind, which is the old city. Uh, Sort of the Ottoman walls and everything that surrounds that ancient place. Uh, And what's wonderful for me is I have an opportunity to sort of, in my imagination, wander through those places and the people that live there. um, I think of the temple I think of God's presence. I think of the story of Jesus unfolding with power uh, on the Mount of Olives and through in. Um, I think of the sounds of Jerusalem, which are often so many different languages, strange blasts of horns. Um, I think of being a little bit concerned for myself and the people that I'm with because I'm not sure of everybody that's in the crowd. Uh, I think of feeling inspired by the fact that while all of this seems to be going on and all of this wild kind of intangible energy uh, seems to be around, somehow it's the most compelling place that I can think of. Um, I think of how cold the stones feel on the western wall, even when it's 110 degrees. And I think about how the beauty of Jerusalem is that it is a difficult place to be, which reminds me that faith, faith, in general, feels like a path that's difficult to walk. And while confusing and loud and awkward and beautiful and inspiring, most often it's, it's cool than the heat.
0: When I think of Jerusalem, I cannot help but think of Hezekiah's tunnel, which I showed to the children on the screen. It's about a third of a mile long, um, extremely dark, extremely wet, and it closes in around you. And if you wonder if you're claustrophobic, you will find out. When the Jews talk about how the tunnel of Hezekiah got there, the answer they give is that it's a miracle. Because when King Hezekiah was threatened by the Assyrians, one of his responses was he knew that the Assyrians would come and lay siege to the city, so he needed to protect the water supply. And so he uh, was able to uh, have a water supply, disguise it where the Assyrians couldn't find it, and then make sure through this tunnel that it flowed all the way into the city. And so the story goes they've got to build this tunnel in short order so they uh, get two teams that are supposed to dig underground without engineering equipment of any kind like we would have today. And the two teams, on some starting inside the walled city and the other starting uh, inside the walled city and the other outside the walled city, come and they meet actually within about a foot of each other. And it's such an amazing feat of engineering that the Jews called it a miracle. But when you talk about why... The, Tunnel of Hezekiah is there. The short answer would be this morning because they weren't expecting a miracle. The Assyrians are at the door. Uh, the Assyrians basically came in uh, three waves. Uh, the first wave was about 35 years uh, before Hezekiah at this time. And his father Ahaz is the king and he's being threatened by two neighboring kingdoms who say we want you in Jerusalem to join us and we're going to fight off those nasty Assyrians and keep them at bay. And so the king is a little nervous about that idea. And so he comes up with a better idea, which is to go to the Assyrians and say, why don't you go ahead and come into our city and help us fight these two neighboring kings, which as one scholar uh, says was tantamount to a, a mouse inside a house, inviting the cat in to help protect that mouse from two other mice. It wasn't a good plan. And so the Assyrians got a foothold in the city of Jerusalem. They began to ask from the northern kingdom called Israel and the southern kingdom of Jerusalem and Judah. They asked basically for protection money. They asked for bribes. They asked for tribute. And about twenty, uh, about 15 years uh, after their first visit and about 20 years before the visit we're going to talk about today, uh, the king decided, I don't want to pay that tribute anymore. And so he, he thought he could make a deal with the Egyptians. To stand against the Assyrians. Well, that made them really mad. And the Assyrians came in and tore through Israel, which is everything but Jerusalem just about. Destroyed, pillaged, burned, did hideous things to people. And then now, 20 years later, the Assyrians are back for more. They're at a neighboring village to Jerusalem, a place called Lahish. Uh, historically, um, what we know because it survived from history is that there's a person in Laish that each night goes out to see uh, if the other towns and villages that he can see from a high place, if they're still lit up at night, if there's still candles burning. And, and he watches as the Assyrians extinguish town after town. And he watches the lights go out, the black smoke go up. And it's at his doorstep So this is basically what's going on. This is the third visit of the Assyrians. Uh, They're at the doorstep of Lahish and they go ahead just to, you know, save a little energy and time. They send a letter at first, a commander with a letter over to the Jerusalem to say, look, we've stomped everybody else around around you. We're going to stomp you next. Save some time, energy. Just surrender now. So this is that third wave. Now, before I tell you about what happened, let me tell you about the Assyrians. There's a couple of things you need to know about them. Number one is they are nasty, nasty conquerors. They are extremely brutal. Uh, many scholars give them uh, the credit, more or less, for inviting, uh, inventing what they call terror politics. And that is when they would go into a town, one of the things they would do is they would impale people on stakes and then have them on stakes outside the city. Other people they would behead and they would put them on stakes outside the city as a way of saying, this is what happens to people who mess with us. They also perfected the art of skinning people alive while they were burning them. A terrible way to die. The Assyrians are so nasty that in the book of Jonah, God, God says to the prophet Jonah, I want you to go to Assyria and tell them to repent so I'll spare them. <laughs> and Jonah basically responds, "Is like, the heck I will. Jonah's like thinking, God, you got this thing wrong. And remember, that's why Jonah sails on a ship in a different direction because the Assyrians are so hideous, nobody wants them to repent. So you need to know they're They're terrible. They're also extremely arrogant. In fact, Sennacherib, who in 701 B.C. is laying siege uh, to Lachish and is sending the note over to Jerusalem that you're next, he, he gives himself a title a little bit like Leonardo DiCaprio. Remember him on the front of the Titanic, what he pronounced that he was the king of the world. That was King Sennacherib's title. King of the world, comma king of Assyria. And he wrote a letter to send back home, and this is what he said in part. He said, "I have here in uh, in Judah and Israel conquered forty six fortified cities, taken two hundred thousand one hundred and fifty people captive, and I've taken in and confiscated more horses, donkeys, cattle, and sheep than anyone can possibly count." And then he said, "And I've got the king of Jerusalem, Hezekiah, caged like a bird." He didn't lack for self-confidence. And in the letter uh, with the terms of surrender that he sends to Jerusalem, this is what he sends. He, says, he sends a note that says, nobody stopped us yet. Your God has not stopped us. Your God cannot protect you. Surrender. That's the Assyrians. The story is in Isaiah 36 and 37 or also in 2 Kings 18 and 19. You can read it there. Well, what do you do? Well, there's uh, there's some options. First of all, Ezekiah's dad, 35 years earlier, uh, his name was King Ahaz, uh, was confronted by the prophet Isaiah at this particular place in a field. And the prophet Isaiah said, trust God. And look, I'll give you a sign. Look, there's a virgin, and she's going to have a child, and she's going to name that child Emmanuel. And before that child's old enough to know right from wrong these two kings that you're worried about, so you're making a deal with the Assyrians, forget about them. They'll be gone. And Ahaz at that very spot 35 years ago says, no, nah, I'll trust the Assyrians. And he does. And he opened the door to their future devastation. So it's amazing that 35 years later at the same spot where Isaiah met Hezekiah's father, King Ahaz, the field commander is like third in command of Assyria because Sennacherib's too important to actually make the visit himself, He sends the field commander over, and the field commander at that same spot meets officials from Jerusalem and says, basically, here are the terms of surrender. Nobody will help you if you know what's good for you. Surrender now. So what do you do? They're overpowering. They're brutal. They're arrogant. What do you do? Your father tried making a deal with them. That didn't work. Well, truth be told, Hezekiah did what any prudent person would do. First thing he did was get ready for the siege. And so he built this tunnel. Said, well, if they're going to camp out on our doorstep, we're at least going to have water. You know, the, the Assyrians were masters at building siege ramps. You know, where it's like mounds of dirt that get up so you can get over a wall. And in fact, the siege ramp at Lahish is still there to this day, 2,700 years later. You can go see it. It's still there. And they were bringing that whole act to Jerusalem. And so his father had tried to make a deal. He decided to build a tunnel. And then, well, he, th- he thought, well, maybe there is a chance. And so he tried the second thing. He said, well, I'll pay you the protection money. And he got gold and silver out of the temple to give to Sennacherib. And Sennacherib, for him, all the tons of gold, the tons of silver wasn't enough. He wanted the whole thing. He wanted the city. And in his letter, he gave basically the terms of unconditional surrender so what do you do well here's what he didn't do i thought it's interesting first thing hezekiah didn't do was deny that there was a problem <laughs> he knew he was oh, way over his head uh, he, he could admit that second thing was he didn't call his advisors and see how they were going to spend this to people inside the walled city because they could hear everything the field commander was saying because he was saying it loud and he was saying it in hebrew He was threatening uh, the representatives of Jerusalem, but in a voice loud enough for everyone on the wall to hear. So he didn't call his spin doctors to say, pay no attention to what you're seeing. There's nothing to see here. He didn't do that. And the third thing he didn't do is he didn't respond to the king of Assyria. He sent no response. You know what he did? He took the letter. From Sennacherib, the ruler of Assyria, he walked into the temple of God and he put it there on the altar. He unfolded it and said to God, here, read this. It's what he did. We might call it a prayer. I love what the great uh, Abraham uh, Joshua Hessel, a late rabbi, said. He said, when our power ends, often our prayer begins. And he's tried every maneuver, including tunnels, that he knows. And he is at the point of check. Checkmate, he's got no moves left except one. And he goes to the temple and he prays. And he says to God, do something, I'm in your hands. Now you might say, well, that's obvious, he's got no other moves left. Well, maybe not. Because if he resists the Assyrians and he loses, he knows what will happen. He will be skinned alive while he's being set on fire. He's rolling the dice. If he surrenders, he might just get his eye poked out or carted off into slavery. But he's rolling the dice. It's like, God, you do something about this or it's all over. We might say he is at that moment all in. It's interesting, the Jewish ancient Jewish rabbis used to have a phrase for this. They called it a life leap. When finally you just have to jump into God because you've got nowhere else to go. Soren Kierkegaard, the great Christian, 1850, called it the leap of faith. And that's what he does. He finally leaps into the arms of God and says, I got nothing. I'm trusting you. So what happened? Well, according to the scripture, what happened was one night... The angel of death paid a visit to the Assyrian camp and 185,000 soldiers died. And the Assyrian king went back home and was worshiping in his temple in Nineveh and his own sons assassinated him in his own temple. Pretty interesting stuff. But you know what's more interesting to me? And that's this. That whole thing of the death of all his people and, um, and the assassination Of that terrible king gets three verses in the story. You'd think something like that might get some press. But it's almost as if Isaiah wants to say, that's not the big news here. The big news is for 35 years, I've been trying to get a king to trust God. And finally, finally, I got one. And it's almost as if it doesn't matter what happens next. The important thing was that he threw himself into the arms of God. Think about that for a moment. I think so often we want the results, but what the Bible wants, I think, is the act of commitment and leave the results to whatever they may be. Do you remember Daniel? Daniel in the Lion's Den? Did you ever sing that song, Daniel and the Lion, with, your, uh, with your kids? Well, Daniel had three friends, we're told, who later, when the Babylonians conquer the Assyrians and take over, which is another story for another day, but they take three of Daniel's friends and they, and, who won't worship the Babylonian king and God, and so they said, we're going to throw you in this fiery furnace, and then we'll see if your God will protect you and deliver you. And their response, if you remember, went something like this, well, our God is able to protect us, but whether he will or not, O oh king, we don't know. But we want you to know this that we are going to worship that God and not you, no matter what. I think the Bible is more interested in whether we're willing to make the commitment than how that commitment ultimately works out. Because ultimately, everything is going to go in God's hands anyway. Paul said it this way to the Philippians Paul's in prison. And he said, you know, when you stand against evil, he said, just the very act of standing against evil is the important thing. Because it, that you've already won no matter what happens. And I think that's what the story ultimately is about. That the real miracle may not have been the deliverance. Maybe the m- real miracle was that somebody somewhere finally put their entire life and the life of everybody they love into the hands of God. As uh, we did the last time and we will do for the foreseeable future, I'd like to see if you've got any questions either about the story, about the sermon, or about the text that I can try uh, to respond to. So we give you a moment to think of that. Um, While you're thinking, at the last service somebody said, will you tell people what it's like in Hezekiah's Tunnel? Um, and and I would say it's eerie and scary uh, when you get in there. It's, there's almost a silence and you're wondering if you're claustrophobic, but about halfway through you start to get um, a peace that comes over you because you're already in and you're in with other people. And you realize that you're not alone. Two things occurred to me. One is that I wasn't in it by myself. And the second thing that occurred to me was other people had gone through this tunnel before and they had lived. I knew that because there are kids that wait on the other side of the tunnel because they figure your shoes are too wet. You won't want them anymore and you'll donate them to them. So obviously they've seen a lot of survivors through the years. Um, so I thought the community uh, and and past experience helped me in making that trip. Do you have thoughts or questions? Yes. I was wondering, was Scott fearful while he was living there? Was Scott, yes. Was Scott Hare fearful when he was living there? Yes. Um, the neighbor that lived below him lost a good friend uh, when a bus station was was bombed um, in an act of terrorism. And uh, that, that friend passed on the story to Scott more than once. Because that friend was, of course, very animate about, uh, about terrorists. So yes, yeah, they, but as he says, that's part of the power was living in a strange place, uh, in a very difficult place, and, that was, and, and coming through it. And I think the whole family grew. He said at the dinner table the other night, they were talking about Jerusalem, and uh, his next youngest child said, Dad, what I remember is that it was very scary to live in Jerusalem but then he said to his father, but that made it better. So, other thoughts or questions or you wonder about this scripture? Yes, Donna.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: it could be even worse. Yeah, Donna's um, uh, question and thought is the the Sennacherib's letter uh, basically said the other gods of these other villages have not protected them and your god has not protected Lahish, and won't protect you. And then, by the way, then he adds, and I think your god's mad at you anyway because one of the things King Hezekiah did is he went and tore down false temples uh, in high places that uh, Jerusalemites had built to, to, uh, pagan gods. And the one thing about uh, a guy from Assyria is he has no idea what the God of Israel is interested in. So he just assumes the God of Israel is offended. Anytime anybody's temple gets torn down. And so part of what he said is nobody has stopped me yet. And by the way, your God's really ticked at you. He, he's asked me to do this on his behalf is basically what he tries to say. And so Donna was saying that is a test oftentimes when the experience around us is of people not being helped or, or delivered. And, and that is true. And, and, and to be completely truthful with you, the people of Ahish went down in a heap just a few miles from Jerusalem. Um, now there's lots behind that story. And that's why I, I, um, I think the reality is we live in a world with good and evil, and uh, that's, that's as the world is. And so I think if we expect that everything will always go our way, then I don't think that's necessarily trust in God. Trust in God is the ability to walk with God in the midst of good and evil. And, um, and I think that's what Hezekiah was willing to do. He had no guarantee at all that he wasn't going to end up impaled on a stake somewhere. Got one more if you've got one, Lance. Well, um, it seems that his commitment had a lot to do
1: with uh, what he saw his father had to go through, and also his commitment affected
0: not just him, but everybody around him. Can you explain- yeah. He talked about Hezekiah's commitment part. Prior- partly coming from what he saw in his father's life, which his father, as they say in Indiana Jones, chose poorly. Um, and so that may have an effect. The other thing um, uh, that... I'm sorry, that, that was just... And it affected everybody else. Thank you, I nearly lost that. That is huge. He said, and also the decision Hezekiah makes affects everybody who lives in that walled city. I mean... That I think a line that I used in the sermon two weeks ago was, when the leader uh, does evil, everybody gets sick. And So it talks about the importance of leadership. Yeah, it's one thing. Thank you, Lance. I, this is something some, sometimes I struggle with. Uh, it's, it's one thing to commit myself, but to know when I'm committing myself, I'm committing everybody in my family. Um, I know I told you sometimes the late Fred Craddock used to say, when God calls somebody to ordained ministry, God never calls that person in a voice loud enough for the whole family to hear. So there's a sense at which, in a lot of our callings, whatever we do, when we make that commitment, we've got those who care for us. So you're not just placing yourself on that altar, you're doing all them. And all I can say is, yeah. And that's why that makes it makes it really huge. But then... Maybe the best thing we can do for our kids is to take that sort of risk and leap. And if we're always teaching them to hedge their bets, uh, to protect themselves first, follow God when it's convenient, I, I, I think we will reap something years down the road that we don't want to reap. And that's why the, part of the miracle of this story is Ahab messes up, but his son gets it right. So even without that example, so... Anyway, thank you for asking.